on the cross and paid for by Jesus Christ and he proved he is God by his resurrection and we're celebrating Jesus' resurrection today and we believe by faith that Jesus rose from the dead and we're going to look at some evidences today and look at surrendering to God's will just in the same way that God or that Jesus did um, as he surrendered to the Father's will to die for our sins and aren't we glad that he was obedient to the Father and walked to the point of death on the cross to die for our sins amen church our sin is gone. So glad you're here joining us today. We want you to feel uh, welcome. It doesn't uh, matter where you're coming at, at what stage uh, or point in your life. Jesus can restore and redeem. And we believe that. Um, so no matter where you're at or what you're struggling with or, or uh, what's in your mind, just know that Jesus is enough. And he died to take care of the, the sin and shame and guilt that you're carrying uh, let's continue singing and celebrating that our Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. Would you sing with us?
All right. Hey, he is risen. He is risen. All right. Amen. Hey, today we look at, uh, we celebrate Easter, obviously the resurrection, uh, but we have titled the message, The Offense of the Cross. Um, uh, the cross is okay in our culture as a trinket, uh, as a, a good luck charm, but the message of the cross is offensive. As Paul, the apostle, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 and 19, he said this, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. It's interesting, as the cross is okay as a symbol, much of our world continues to be offended by it. The message of the cross, the real message of who Jesus claimed to be, who his death uh, and, and burial resurrection proved that he was. See, what God brought and accomplished in Jesus is something that our culture has a growing resentment towards. You'll see that Christian symbols continue to be pushed out of the public square. There's an offense to what Jesus calls us to. The cross itself is offensive because of what it stands for. Oh, it's okay as long, if you want to be a Christian. It's okay if you want to go uh, do your thing in church on Sundays. But do not bring Jesus into your regular life. Do not live with conviction. Don't say that something is sin or wrong. Oh no, you, it's fine as long as, uh, as long as you keep that stuff to yourself. Our culture, our world's okay with a neutered Christianity, a neutered cross, but not okay with the true message of the gospel. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which proved with absolute certainty that he was who he claimed to be, which was the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world. Yet some, even after seeing him, doubted. This audacious act of God causes many to doubt. It's interesting in our world, those that would uh, come in opposition to the message of Jesus don't have a real issue with the crucifixion. It's not challenged a lot. Okay, the Romans did crucifying and, and they killed people and we know that that happened. The issue comes with the resurrection. A resurrection causes our world to struggle, though as we'll look at today, the evidence for the resurrection is probably greater or as great as the evidence for the cross. Sometimes, though, we miss what God's doing because we're looking for something else. It's like the guy who uh, heard there was a flood coming, and uh, so he got prepared. He wanted to stay in his home. So he prepared, and, and the flood was coming. He said, God, please save me from the flood. And so uh, the waters rose. They surrounded his house, so he was trapped there. He couldn't get out. And so uh, uh, one of his neighbors came by in a canoe, and he said, hey, buddy, jump in the canoe. Uh, we'll get away. See, the waters are going to continue to rise. That's the forecast, so you need to get out of here. And he said, he said friend, I uh, appreciate your generosity. It's okay. I prayed, and God is going to save me. And so uh, he stayed in the home. Well, the waters did continue to rise. They filled his home to the point where he uh, brought out a desk or something out onto the front porch. He got up on top of the desk to get out of the water so he wasn't standing in it. And the waters were continuing to rise. And along came a police boat. And they said, hey, buddy, uh, the waters are going to continue to rise. The flood's going to get worse. Jump in the boat. We'll save you. He said, no, no, no. I appreciate uh, the thoughtfulness. I appreciate your attempts here. But uh, I've prayed and God is going to save me. And so uh, the waters did continue to rise to the point where they had covered nearly all of his home. He was up on the peak of his roof. Uh, he's up there praying, God, uh, I'm waiting, please save me. And a helicopter came over with a rescue team, and they dropped a line down to him and said, grab the rope, and he waved him off. <laughs> it's okay. He thought to himself, God is going to save me. Well, the waters continued to uh, cover his home, swept him away, he drowned in the flood, and he went to heaven, stood before God, and he said, God, what's the deal, man? I, I asked you to save me. I was waiting. I had all the faith in the world you could save me. And God said, well, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What, 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 what more do you want me to do, right? <clears throat> hey, listen, sometimes what we're looking for is not what God provides for us. The Jewish leaders rejected Jesus because he did not come as they wanted him to. The cross is an, is an offense and was an offense to them because it reveals the true condition that we're in. The Jews wanted a king. They wanted a politician, military leader. 
That's what the Jewish leaders wanted in a Messiah. See, they heard that he was going to come in the line of David, and they thought, yes, David was a warrior. And that's what we need today because we're under Roman rule. We need a leader who will raise up an army and give us strength and power to defeat these Roman oppressors. That was the Messiah they wanted. And yet that's not what they really needed. And so God, because he loved them, sent a Messiah, a Savior in Jesus, his son, to do the work that really needed to be done. Our problem is not primarily physical, though that's typically where we fixate physical problems, the physical world around us, the issues going on. That's what we see, right, what our five senses reveal to us. And yet the truth is that our real problem is spiritual. Our problem is that we're in a bad condition. We're on a path to destruction. The Apostle Paul continues to write in 1 Corinthians these words, regarding the foolishness of the cross, he says, so where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? Well, God, God has made the foolishness, or excuse me, God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the, to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to have those called by God, but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God, wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God, God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us upright with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast... Boast only about the Lord. So what God knew we needed, much of the world responds with disdain to what God did. We think to ourselves as a human race, what? Surrender? I'm in need? I need to bend my knee to God? I hate weakness. I disdain beggars. That's what we think. That's why most people will not cry out to God until they're broken, until they come to the end of themselves. And it amazes me how I and others have such a high pain tolerance to continue down a path that isn't working but is self-sufficient, mind-boggling arrogance that we have as a human race. We refuse to bend our knee to a God that loves us and came to serve us. It's as though we think there's this power struggle and there certainly is. But God came to serve and to meet our need. In that condition, we are to be most pitied and we are most pitiful because we, in that condition, are blind to our spiritual need, the need of our hearts and the true need of our souls, which will result if we do not surrender to Jesus and to God's provision for us, we will spend eternity in judgment in a place that wasn't created for us it wasn't created for the human race. It was created for the rebellious angels, the devil and his demons. And yet God says, okay, to those of you humans that don't want to, uh, you don't want to accept my forgiveness, the grace and mercy that I'm offering you, then you can spend eternity separated from me as well. Much of Christianity, unfortunately, has even turned into uh, this type of religion. The world has come up with a number of plans of salvation, you'll see, 
And there's a theme that is consistent with all, in all of them, which is that if you just work harder, you can work your way to God. You can save yourself. This is the nature of legalism at its heart. And legalism, which is a strict adherence to rules, you find it within Christianity, you find it uh, among all the other religions of the world, a strict adherence to some type of guideline. The reason that that works is that it's self-sufficiency. <laughs> I get to feel better about myself because it is by my own effort that I work my way to goodness. People that often grow up in church or around religion can fall into this trap. And it's interesting how those that establish these systems always establish the rules as ones that they can follow or want to follow. So they, in a real way, determine their own salvation. The cross of Christ requires surrender. It is the only way to experience the salvation that God offers. It's to acknowledge because the cross exemplifies, it shows us by its very nature that we are, need, we are helpless to do anything to save ourselves. And the Bible makes it clear that we can't do anything. Even our best efforts, you're a good person. Well, your good efforts, according to the scriptures, are the filthiest of rags. They're dirty and tainted because you are in a condition of sin. You're lost and you need saving. Jesus points out in his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the types of individuals that will experience God and can connect with him. He starts off with this characteristic. He said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Spiritual poverty is the first requirement. It's to recognize my need, that I'm not self-righteous and self-sufficient, that I am in a bad spot, that I am imperfect and unable to really achieve what God has for me. Secondly, he says, God blesses those who mourn. Once I know my spiritual condition, I mourn over it. That's the proper response. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed, or God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Not the powerful, not the mighty, but the humble. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for, right, uh, for justice, he says, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. And God blesses those who work for peace. They will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. Theirs is the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God, Jesus makes it clear that those individuals who are in a condition, they're in a spot in their heart, in their mind, in a posture that they can experience the presence of God, the power of God, the healing of God. Well, it requires being in a place of humility and surrender. I wonder today where you stand in reality towards the message of the cross. Do you see it as the hope of God? Or are you too offended by it? If there are any children up through first grade in here, they are welcome to go on upstairs for Children's Church. Let's stand together and sing. I sing this out when all I see is the battle, you see my victory. Through the night, oh God, the battle belongs to you. 
against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. Almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. And almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. certainly all about the resurrection. As I said, the challenges to the resurrection are greater than anything else probably uh, when it comes to Jesus. Uh, Certainly uh, in our modern day we hear of uh, people that had near-death experiences, we call them. Well, they went, uh, they they, they went, um, you know, their pulse stopped on the operating table and they saw a tunnel of light, you know, and we have these stories. And certainly a resurrection story is not exclusive to Christianity. There are other resurrection claims around the world through different religions and cultures. The difference is that uh, Jesus' story is unique, and the resurrection is verifiable in so many ways. First of all, it's, uh, the question regarding his death comes to play. Did he really die? And So we've got to look at uh, the situation he was in. Uh, it wasn't just a story uh, that someone told about a guy that died because he fell out of a tree, you know, and then he rose from the dead a couple days later. It is a story that was witnessed, okay, a death that was witnessed, and it was performed by professional killers, men that were trained to be successful at killing. This is what the Roman centurions and guards were. It was their job to perform uh, crucifixions, and they were good at it. They were, they were excellent at it. They didn't fail at it. To fail would be to put into question the fear that the Roman emperor wanted the peoples he ruled over to have of him. And that was that they were good at doing what they did. It was their job, again, to kill. And so as they crucified Jesus, having done hundreds, perhaps thousands of them, they could identify when a person was dead. Part of the reason that they stuck a spear into Jesus' side, as the scriptures tell us one of the soldiers did, was to verify that he had expired as a fluid drained from around his heart, showing that his heart had failed. This was the testimony, the guards themselves, evidence that Jesus actually died. He was buried by those that loved him and cared for him. And then those same individuals went and hid out, out of fear. Again, not a reaction they would have had if they knew he didn't actually die or somehow he was still alive. He was placed in a tomb. The tomb was sealed. He was dead, conservatively, for 34 hours. And verifiably, he had died, by all accounts, historical fact. Matthew 27 recounts the story for us in verses 57 through 61. It says, Even as evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb 
which, he, which had been carved out of the rock. And then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and Mary, the other Mary, were sitting across from the tomb watching. Jesus died, and again, that's not... It's been challenged over the years, but it's kind of drifted and faded in the attempt to attack his actual death as a way to disprove this account. The tomb was discovered empty on Sunday morning. The question came, and many have asked, did his followers steal his body? We certainly don't believe a resurrection could happen because that's outside of what we normally see. And so for many, their doubt revolves around that uh, that question. And so, did his followers take his body? Well, guess what? The religious authorities already thought of that because Jesus had claimed he would rise from the dead. And so, they actually dealt with that. Matthew 27 goes on to say this uh, The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, we remember what that deceiver once said while he was still alive that after three days I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that were to happen, or if that happens, it will be, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, take guards, secure, the, secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. And you can be sure they, in, they ensured and verified that his body was inside before they did that. Again, they wouldn't have done this if they didn't know for certain he was dead. Sunday morning, in spite of their best efforts, this is what happened. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying. And now go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. So the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasping his feet and worshiping him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. When Jesus' body disappeared and was no longer found, when the guards who had uh, collapsed at, at the reaction to seeing an angel, when they awoke, they ran in and told the priests of the problem they were in. The Bible recounts it for us this way. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting of the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus, disciples, came, from, uh, came during the night while we were asleep, or while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you, and you won't, so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. These things were accounted for. You see, uh, the truth, there was an attempt to suppress the truth to stop it from spreading because of the power of it. The Pharisees knew, the religious leaders knew that with a resurrection story would come a powerful movement. A leader who they thought they had killed, they were not able to succeed at it. And even if they didn't believe he was really alive, just the story that he was. But the truth is the disciples and the people that saw him and loved him begin to experience his presence. I love 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, gives us some of the most powerful evidences for the resurrection. They are still, those that would dispute the resurrection today and are offended by the cross and would seek to discount it, um, they have a hard time with the evidences that Paul presents here in 1 Corinthians 15. And they aren't just evidences, they're the facts of the story. 
He says it this way, now, uh, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you, stand fir- you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Paul says two important uh, factors in uh, proof and evidence of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He points to the fact that many of his followers saw him. And uh, one of the leading disputes today, arguments against the resurrection, is that people had a vision or sort of uh, um, thought that they saw Jesus, right? They didn't really. And that's one of, the, one of the arguments and one of the disputes, right, lines of reasoning that's been given currently by those that would seek to disprove Jesus and the resurrection. The problem is they stumble over the fact that 500 saw him at once. There's not a record in the history of the human race of more than one person seeing the same vision at the same time. And so they struggle over this evidence of 500 seeing him. And then they struggle also with Paul's testimony because he was one fighting against the way, trying to kill Christians and imprison them and stop this movement. And he had an encounter with Jesus. And in a moment, he switched teams. (laughs) He began to defend and to preach and to push and try to persuade people that Jesus was real. And though they struggle with his testimony, they might say, well, he didn't really see Jesus, but they acknowledge that he believed he saw something. Paul, in his own testimony, speaks to the power of the resurrected Christ. I find as I live longer and examine the evidence more that it's overwhelming. The evidence for the resurrection is historically verifiable. There isn't anything that's happened in history that has more evidence for it. And so if you're a logical person, a reasonable person that looks just at the evidence you come to the conclusion that it's true. No matter how hard it is for you to believe, you come, to the, you come to the conclusion that it's true because the evidence is mounting and overwhelming. And so what I've discovered is, though those that struggle with it would claim intellectual issues and reasonings as to why they don't believe it, the truth is there's almost always an emotional reason. We see Jesus died, and we see evidence that he rose again. Who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you say he is? Because it's only if he is God that he's able to deal with the sin of the world. He is the only one who is worthy. So let's praise the worthy name of Jesus. Would you stand with us?
Yeah, it's not an intellectual problem, though some claim that. What I find at the heart of the issue is an emotional problem, and it has to do with the nature of the gospel, that the cross itself reveals that the only way to a relationship with God is through a path of surrender. It's to acknowledge our need. And we as humans don't like to surrender. Uh, we like to win. Surrender is the opposite of winning. It's losing. And so we acknowledge that. We struggle with it. It makes no sense to us. You fight to win. That's how it works. Power and control are the objective. Just ask anyone who wins. They're going to tell you it's the person who forces the other into submission. So God uses the foolishness of the world, what seems foolish to us in our human nature, caught in our pattern of sin, and he makes it into, turns it into the wisdom of God. If power and control worked, then God would surely have forced all of us to follow him a long time ago. We would have no choice. But God made you in his image. And as such, there's a number of things you have. One of them is you have freedom of will. You have some say as to what happens in your life. And God himself does not force you into submission. That's not the way in which he works. But God knows that you have the capacity to represent him, to reflect him. You are made in his image. The Bible says we're the image bearers of God. We're different and distinct because we have the capacity to carry within us his character, to act godlike in our behavior. We have the capacity to love, to really love with an unconditional depth of intensity. We have the ability and capacity for joy and to experience joy in every corner of our being. We have the capacity for peace in our lives, for patience. Yes, even the person sitting next to you can be patient. Kindness. We have the capacity for goodness, true goodness. Faithfulness. We can be faithful. Gentleness and self-control. These are the character traits that God knows we have the capacity to live out, but we must be transformed by him that's the only way we can achieve what he calls us to be as his image bearers the reason the purpose for a creation see we'll never achieve that type of living without God's character being infused into us it can only happen friends if we'll surrender to God and yes surrender does mean giving up it means relinquishing control of your life it also means you got to stop trying to control everybody else's life God reminded me recently of this profound truth because, yes, even I, right? People like to think pastors uh, live at a different level, but the truth is, I'm just like you, and I have the same capacity to go off track and to begin to believe falsely that it is on me to carry the load that God's given me to carry, that it must be by my strength that I can make things happen and, and produce even the fruit that God wants me to. I'm susceptible to that. You're not the only one that has a pride problem. <laughs> so do I. And the truth is, it's a lie of the enemy. True power to accomplish the mission that you've been called to, whether it is your job, whether it is uh, to raise your family, to be a good husband or wife, whatever the mission is that God's called you to, the real power to do it is found in surrender. It's found in giving up and allowing God. It doesn't mean to let go of the responsibility it's just through surrender is the path to power. That's how we gain God's character and his strength. 
Matthew eleven twenty five through thirty, Jesus said this. At this time, Jesus prayed for, uh, prayed this prayer. Oh, Father, he said, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me, Jesus said. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those whom, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then Jesus said these powerful words, Come to me, all you who are weary, and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Yes, the cross is offensive, and yet it is where life is found. The devil would seek to keep you from seeing the love of God, to keep you offended at the cross. He's the only one that benefits if you continue to walk in that. Jesus says, um, look, I'm a humble servant. I'm a gentle master. I have an easy yoke for you to bear, and it's a light burden. And too often we say, no, I got to work harder. <laughs> I got to do more. I'm not going to accept any help. The fruit that God wants to produce in your life is that good fruit. That's what happens when he comes in. I wonder today where you might be at. Are you tired of going your own way? Are you tired of struggling on your own? I know it's a hard place to come to, for some more difficult than others, it seems, and yet is the place, a breakthrough. It's the place where you can raise the white flag and surrender, and instead of losing, you win. And we worry, many do, of losing control and that's the emotional decision-making that many actually deal with and wrestle with. It's not that the cross isn't true or even the resurrection. It's that to relinquish control of my life, well, God is going to make me into someone I don't want to be. He's going to make me do things I don't want to do, and, and that would be awful. And so, again, the devil's desire and his attempt is to warp the truth so that we see what God wants for us as bad, and we see what we want to create for ourselves as good. And the opposite is true. Because God wants to come in and set you free and give you real peace and real joy and real power. And he will. He's waiting to do it. But he will not force his way in. You have to surrender. I wonder if you'd bow your heads for just a moment. And if there's someone here that, uh, that is ready to surrender, I want to give you that opportunity. Because uh, it is what is needed. It's what's required to know God and to have experienced his salvation. But it's what we need. And maybe you sense that right now. You know that you've been struggling on your own and it's time to give up. It's time to stop. It's time to just raise the white flag and say, God, I need your help. I need you. If that's you today, would you just lift your hand up? I just want to pray with you and for you. Anybody here that is ready for that step? God, I thank you for your goodness to us and the call that you place on our lives, the offer of freedom the offer of real power and strength that can only come through you. And it only comes when we humble ourselves and surrender to you. And Father, I pray uh, for each one of us that we might find the strength to do that, the willingness to do it, the honesty to look in the mirror and see our need and to look to you for help and salvation. God, it's what you want to give us desperately and in your great love. You came and did the work of sacrificing and dying. Father, thank you for the power you demonstrated and the power that you offer us over sin and death. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we continue a series on offense called Triggered, and we'll look at some of the things that can trip us up as human beings in our life. We get offended a lot. I don't know about you, but, you know, somebody can do something or look at me the wrong way in the morning, and all of a sudden I'm offended, ruins my whole day. Maybe that happens to you, and so I'd encourage you to come back. We're going to, for the next four weeks, look at the issue of offense, why it happens, and God's solution to it. So my prayer for you today is that you'd enjoy the rest of your Easter weekend, that uh, you would enjoy and celebrate and live with thanksgiving God's goodness to you. Let's continue to worship. Maybe you have some questions. Feel free to come ask me, Pastor Ben over here singing, or... Uh... 
got John, Pastor John or one of our elders, John over here, Dan Howard. Um, get in touch with somebody. Ask those questions. Today is the day of salvation. Each one of us has a story. Um, if we've placed our faith in Christ, being redeemed out of the pit, maybe you feel in a place of desperation. God wants to free those chains and set you free to live for him. Do you sing with us a song of celebration? Stay. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb. Till I met you, I was breathing, but not alive. All my failures I tried to hide. It was my doom. Till I. with us in 
in living in obedience and surrender to God. Isn't it amazing those areas that we hold on to seem to be the areas of our lives that tank. Let's surrender it to God and let's live in the blessing. Uh, we're, you're welcome back next week. If you are new to Mitchell Berean, we have Coffee and Connect next week. And that's an opportunity between the services at 930 um, on Sunday to get to know the pastors and some of the elders um, and some of the staff at the, at the church here and a little bit about the ministries that we have. So blessings, enjoy the sunshine, have a wonderful rest of your Easter.